Well, good morning to our UK column audience. And uh, I'm here in the studio today. I'm about to um, bring in our guest today, Trevor Kitchen. Now, I spoke to Trevor some time ago, and the subject of the interview at that time was Forex and banking fraud. And I'm just going to put a little bit of an advert for the UK column on screen straight away, because this is, uh, this is the interview I'm talking about. It was extremely interesting. It was about Trevor's experience having come up, come, having come up against the uh, banking system, principally in Switzerland, but what then took place. And I just encourage the uh, audience, if you haven't listened to that, uh, uh, watch that interview, um, encourage you to do it. You don't need to see it necessarily before we're going to do what we're about to do today. But um, certainly well worth going back and having a look at that other one as well, because it put things in context. So let's bring Trevor on screen. Trevor, thank you very much for joining us today. I know it's been a little bit of a trial getting into the studio, as it were, um, but uh, we're delighted to have you. Oh, thank you, Brian. It's nice to be here again. Um, and I look forward to this interview very much because it's okay. a, about something that's very important for everyone, I think. Yes, indeed. Well, I'd, I'm just going to say to our audience that you're in some difficult circumstances. And part of part of the problems for us today is that your connection is a little bit unstable. So it may be that we get a some slight distortion on the audio or we get some slight interruptions. But we're going to keep going because this is such an important um, interview. Uh, but we'll say to the audience, uh, please bear with us if there are some some problems. So, Trevor, I'd like to ask you the question which you may not want to answer, but are you able to tell us where you are in the world, in even in a rough sense? Um, or is that is that a difficulty for you? No, that's that, that's not difficult, uh, uh, Brian, because I'm in Portugal and uh, I was uh, freed by the Supreme Court here uh, over nearly two years ago uh, no sorry over a year and a half ago roughly uh, in june last year uh, so they didn't extradite me to switzerland to face charges of um defamation basically with a three-year prison sentence for defaming uh, a, a, a lawyer and a banker so i'm i'm quite um, secure where i am my lawyer here has told me that uh, I'm safe in Portugal, but I cannot go into any of the other European countries uh, because uh, the Swiss have left the arrest warrant open. So uh, that's the European arrest warrant. Um, and the Swiss are not members of this European arrest warrant. They use the Schengen information system to have access to it, which gives them full access. Um, so, uh, yes, if I cross any border in Europe, I will, will be arrested repeatedly throughout the, the remaining 25 or 26 countries that I haven't been through yet. And I would be in prison and uh, waiting to be extradited to Switzerland. And that could take up to two years, I've been told. OK, thank you for that. Well, we're pleased that uh, in your present location, you are 
safe, relatively safe, and uh, that's given you the opportunity to talk to us. But of course, you've just introduced really the key subject uh, that we are, we're going to focus on today, uh, which is the European arrest warrant. But as, as we travel down this path, and you kindly provided a lot of uh, uh, bullet points uh, for us to cover today, and I'm going to work through those. But as we go down the uh, the path we're going to be broadening out because the European arrest warrant is a central problem but around it we are I think beginning to identify that the European Union at least um, is a very dangerous political construction and uh, we'll, we'll follow the we'll follow the discussion and see where we end up <clears throat> excuse me but what's what is interesting for me is that the final verdict on where we end up is a subject which I encountered many, many years ago. And uh, that was through my own concerns of what the European Union really was and how I believed we could sit in UK and watch this very dangerous political construct assuming more and more power for itself. And then at one particular point, I was privileged uh, to meet a very elderly gentleman. He was old at that stage, but I, I'm very pleased to say he lived to 101. Um, his name was Harry Beckoff, and Harry, Harry Beckoff um, produced some very um, pertinent written material where he was also warning about what the European Union really was, and we'll touch on that later on in the, in the interview. But uh, let's start off with this graph that you sent across. And of course, for you, this is very significant because it was Switzerland. Switzerland was the country that went for you as a result of you highlighting uh, what was clearly criminal activity in the banking system, um, particularly around exchange rates um, with Switzerland. Um, so take us through what we've got on screen here, which is about... Uh, uh, people being held in prison uh, without a sentence? Yes, well, first of all, there's no habeas corpus rights in Switzerland. If um, I, I lived there for quite a number of years in Switzerland, and I know uh, I've heard of lots of people who have been uh, had a criminal charges brought against them. And they are simply, uh, if it's a criminal charge, they're arrested and they're interrogated. And um, if the prosecutor feels it's necessary, they will put them in detention. Um, right. So, sorry, sorry, Trevor, just to, just to cut in. Um, um, yes. Let, let's just explain for the viewers what they've got on screen very quickly. Okay. So um, can you see to okay. do that or shall I do it? No, I've got the chart here on my, um, it's outside of my screen, but I'll have a look here. Yes, we've got unsentenced detainees as a pr proportion to the overall pr prison population um, from 2003 to 2020. And as you can see on the chart, uh, Switzerland is in the region of about 45%, which is the highest in the European uh, area, uh, not just the highest uh, in the European Union, but in, the, in Europe in total. Uh, as you can see there, Russia is down at uh, 
11 or 12 percent compared to Switzerland's 45 percent. And um, yeah, Switzerland has a very low population. It has 8 million uh, population. And these are the unsentenced prison rates, meaning those people are sitting in prison waiting to be sentenced. Yes. That's... And, and, and it is significant, isn't it, that uh, we've got, you, well, Russia is in on that chart because many people would look at Russia and say, well, absolutely horrific country, horrific uh, prison system and no justice. Um, but exactly. As we, as we dig into this, we're starting to see that actually at the heart of Europe, Switzerland is running a particularly, I'm going to call it vicious system itself, where people it would appear, can be incarcerated at will. Without any uh, habeas corpus, as I've said, they have no habeas corpus rights in Switzerland. And uh, the prosecutors uh, act as judges. So they, as long as they bring a criminal case against you, they, can, they have the power to lock up citizens for six months before they even see a judge. Yes. And That's shocking for a country that claims to be such a democratic country. Yes, and I, I can't comment with accuracy on this because what I'm about to say would be counted as hearsay because it's uh, as, as a result of material that I've read. Um, but what is, that, what is that Swiss prison system like? I think many people would imagine that because it's Switzerland, the conditions in a Swiss prison are um, uh, of, of a very high standard. I heard a very strange story about somebody who was imprisoned in a uh, Swiss prison cell where they found that the door was so, um, hermit, uh, so sealed that it was actually difficult for them to breathe at one stage. So they were in a modern prison facility uh, but they were in solitary confinement in a prison cell where it appeared that the seal around the door meant that they had very little oxygen. Now, I'll say that's a hearsay story, but it was a story that I read and I paid attention to it at the time. Can you tell us anything more about the conditions in, inside a Swiss? Uh... Well, I certainly can, only from um, uh, what I've heard from other people. One of them being um, a, a bank whistleblower, Rudolf Elmer, who I think spent 15 months um, in solitary confinement for blowing the whistle on the banking uh, corruption again. And he's an ex-banker. And he told me that he had no television. He, had, he was allowed books, but he had no right to see his wife or child. They were not allowed to go there. And he was kept in solitary confinement for that length of time. And now uh, the only the only place I can relate to is the one in Holland, uh, which was pretty decent. I had a television and a and a refrigerator in there, but there's none of those luxuries in Switzerland, absolutely not, uh, from what I've been told. And then I read another article not so long ago, about a, uh, six months, eight months ago, in the UK's Guardian, uh, where there was a, a young man called Brian, and he'd been in prison a few times. And they had put him in overalls, paper overalls, uh, with no bed or anything. He, he had no clothes. He was just put into this prison 
with paper clothes. And that can be read on the um, article from the Guardian newspaper. But myself, no, I haven't had um, uh, the unfortunate, not yet, of being in a pris uh, Swiss prison. Right. OK. All right. Thank you very much for that. And the other person who comes into my mind as we're talking about Swiss prison system, European prison system, is David Noakes, um, who, of course, um, with his partner Lynn, were both incarcerated in uh, in prisons in France. I think it was Morogis prison, if I remember correctly, for David in uh, Paris, and he described the, the conditions as being appalling. Um, he certainly spent a lot of time in solitary confinement, but at one stage he, he preferred that because it gave him protection from other prisoners. Um, but he also commented that there were a lot of people who were simply being held there before they'd even been, um, you know, to trial. So, uh, we have a number of people who can comment on the uh, European prison system and its inadequacies. But Trevor, let's just jump back to the European arrest warrant and I'll pop up on screen what, what you gave me as main highlights. Now we can't work through all of these, so I'll let you pull out the ones that you think are key, but we've actually got two pages here, so I'll bring the second one up as well. Um, you start off um, with, the European arrest warrant equals arrest or aggressive weapon. It's the EU's hunting tool. So you decide, you pull out from here the points that you think are the really key ones. And of course, our viewers can always freeze the screen uh, to see for themselves the full list of points that you made for me. Well, first of all, uh, I, I'd go back to what you said earlier earlier about the EU, the original idea of the EU, and um, what you mentioned earlier when you, you opened the interview. And it was intended to be a trading block. But from what I've seen recently, uh, all of these different agencies that they got, uh, agencies to train prosecutors, judges, on how to expedite this European arrest warrant, it now seems to have turned this European Union into a giant police state. So, yes, I do think that it's an aggressive weapon uh, to hunt people. And, and they're using this disproportionately, Brian. They're using this for, for small you know, misdemeanors and things. Like in my case, they've called it uh, defamation. But what my British lawyer said to me recently about this uh, European arrest warrant, he said, the Swiss... Have, are entitled to recategorize uh, re the charges. So they can issue an arrest warrant for, let's say, parking tickets or defamation. And then when that doesn't reach the threshold of the, um, the minimum of one year imprisonment to get a person extradited, then they can recategorize it and say, well, um, this person, um, actually did other crimes, uh, like threatened people. Uh, and this is what the, the Swiss did with mine. They took my emails and they said that my complaint emails were now threats. And threats of violence, uh, physical violence. Now this gets quite creepy. It's quite chilling when you hear this because what they've done is they've taken 
defamation, they've added threats to it, and I never threatened anyone. That was proved in the Portuguese court because they looked through all of those emails and they found no threats. They only found that the Swiss had actually tried to deceive the courts with a malicious prosecution. Nonetheless, my UK lawyer has told me that they are entitled to do that, and you, Trevor, should stop playing the victim and expecting prosecutors to have a conscience. And I said, yes, but it's wrong. What they're doing is wrong. They shouldn't be allowed to just grab people off the street or at a border post and imprison that person while they wait to be extradited. And that's what's happened. And in Holland, there, there are people there that sit there for two years. And I've, uh, I've experienced that myself. I've spoken to those people. They're sitting in prison waiting for either deportation or extradition for up to two years. And the lawyer confirmed this. And Trevor, so, Trevor if, if I can just interject yes. there, because um, absolutely, I, I'm, I'm able to look at the screen of your points as, as you're talking to our viewers. And, and um, what caught my attention is that the last point on the screen, if we can just pop that back, is that, uh, well, the penultimate one was surrender time limits violated. Some suspects are kept in detention for more than two years in Holland. So that's the point. Uh, uh, really that you're making at the moment. But the last one is captives guilty until proved innocent. And this is one of the key things that was quite a big subject, I'm going to say, when there was a backlash against the European Union in UKIP's time. Many people were pointing out the dangers of the two law systems so that in Europe uh, you were guilty until proven innocent um, but in UK, we at least had the protection with some limitations of corruption in our own courts, but we at least had the protection of you were innocent until proven guilty. And these are fundamental differences. And of course, it helps explain how the European system can be so draconian, because the moment the state touches you, puts its hand on your shoulder, you are guilty until you can prove yourself innocent. Correct. And while you're on that point, it's they are the captives are guilty until proven innocent because they the two systems that are used are mainly adversarial law and inquestorial law. And I've learned this as I've been going along. Europe uses inquestorial law meaning they have grand inquests, and these prosecutors play a major role in that. Whereas in the UK, they use the adversarial system, which is built on common law. Um, and uh, the, uh, the European laws are built around Napoleon uh, laws, I think, uh, from what I've read. Um, if that helps clarify that. But yes, it, it's shocking that people are regarded guilty like like I was. I, I've said to these lawyers, they, they keep coming back to me and saying, look, this is the law of the European arrest warrant, and they've done nothing wrong. I've made complaints uh, to the Ministry of Holland and to Portugal. They say they've done absolutely nothing wrong. And I say, neither have I. These are, these are speech. These are, these are crimes that you've, you've turned speech into a crime, expression into a crime. And uh, so I've committed no crime. So where do you weigh up the difference? 
16 days in solitary confinement for speech. Which is more important, the speech or the 16 days in, uh, or, or which is the worst punishment, I'd say, rather? Yes. Uh, well, you've raised an extremely interesting point. Thank you for, for the little bit of clarification on the law. And of course, there's, there's a lot more that could be discussed about that. But we've set the scene, a fundamental difference in the law system. And, and corruption within the court system in UK certainly exists. Corruption in the court system in Europe certainly exists. But then the difference is that at least in UK, you're going to be free until there is substantial evidence against you. Let, let me just run through some of your highlights. I'll, I'll do this just very quickly um, to show the, the audience the amount of um, analysis that you put into this. So you started off with the, with the fact that the European arrest warrant was going to be, could be seen as an aggressive weapon. And I think that's absolutely true. Um, you've got here that CPOL uh, claimed to train judges, public prosecutors and lawyers in, in alternatives to the European arrest warrant and the key to proportionate use. But I, I'll, I'll let you reply in a second, but I, I think you'll probably say they claim to uh, train judges in this, but it doesn't actually happen. Uh, you're identifying the European arrest warrant as a weapon to silence and oppress public speech, opinion and expression which you've just covered. Um, you've talked about the defamation laws and the dangers of those. The next point is that no politician is stopping this abuse of human rights. And I, I'd like you to talk about that um, in more detail. We've certainly seen a fear amongst politicians in UK to get into that area and stand up to be counted. Um, but you've then gone on to say that the EU wants a trading block now a giant police state. And I find this extremely interesting because uh, many years ago when we were doing a lot of work on the origins of the EU, uh, we were able to discover, and the documents exist, and I'll, I'll try and get them linked into this video, um, that in UK, the government, with the help of European expertise and money under Ted Heath, ran a propaganda campaign to influence people into making the decision to take them into what they thought was going to be the common market. It was just a trading mechanism. But even at that stage, people who were looking at the mechanisms of the EU were warning that what the EU really was, was nothing to do with trading in the first instance. It was a political construct that was going to be particularly oppressive um, on the countries taking part. And uh, it was a gentleman who wrote under the name of Christopher Story, wrote a really excellent book, uh, which was called The European Union, uh, sorry, The EU Collective, Enemy of Its Member States. Uh, it's a very difficult book to get hold of in paper form. You can find it as a PDF on the internet. But if you read that very, very detailed book, he sets out uh, in immense detail with, with a huge number of footnotes uh, what the European Union was and said that what was really coming was a very oppressive police state. So sorry for that rather long interjection there, but 
Um, just take us through a few more of these points as you've set them down. Okay, well, there's a lot of agencies in this European Union. And when I say a lot of agencies, I mean linked to laws. I counted at least eight. And CEPOL was the first one that you mentioned, is one of them that is um, training judges, or they're meant to train judges and public prosecutors and lawyers on the alternative use of the European arrest warrant. And the key for that, as they've said, is the proportionate use of this so that public are not subjected to the things that I've been subjected to and many others. So um, those public prosecutors actually are represent every country in the EU sends judges and prosecutors, and some of them look very young, by the way, I've noticed when I've looked at this website. Um, they don't have a lot of experience that you'd expect a judge to have. So they go off for this training. So the CEPOL, which is part of one of the EU agencies again, and they, they get all this training on computers. So they're basically using computers and put computer screens, a little bit like an Excel spreadsheet, to decide who stays outside of the prison system, who gets arrested, and who doesn't. And that is clear in all of these, the, the list of these um, legal agencies that the EU is using. And again, going back to what you said about the trading block, why have they got all of these um, legal agencies going on in the EU when the primary aim was to be a trading block? It doesn't make sense unless they're trying to gain control over public. So, yes, so that's the, that's the point about this. And what they do is they take these public prosecutors from all the different European countries and they send them off to Brussels, to this CEPOL, and they do training there. So they're all thinking in the same direction. They're all trained to go in the one direction, um, including the Swiss, who are not even members of the European arrest warrant. They get access to this through the Schengen um, information system. And I checked out in Switzerland, is there a public prosecutor from Switzerland sitting in the EU? Absolutely. And that prosecutor I wrote to, and I pr produced many times sheets and sheets of paper explaining very clearly what had happened in my case. I got no response. And this is where we go on to the second point about politicians, because I've written to politicians, I've written to the, human, uh, the European Court of Human Rights, I've written to the Council of Europe, I've written to the UK's politicians, because I'm British, and no one writes back to me. Not one person comes back. They, they're untouchable. If you phone up the EU, they've got all these phone numbers on, online, and you phone up, you get a secretary, and she's put there as a buffer so that you can never get an answer from the people who are making all these decisions. And when you read online what they're up to, they just say, well, we work for the European Union. We don't deal with individual cases. But and excuse me, they, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, sorry. sorry, Trevor, to come in again, but this, this already yeah. is such a fascinating conversation. I think I'm right in saying that uh, 
people at higher levels in the EU have put themselves above the law anyway. They have immunity from, from law that affects the rest, of, uh, the rest of the population under the European Union. Is that correct? Yes. These people think they're overlords. The prosecutor in Zurich behaves like an overlord towards me, as though I am answerable only to her. She's not a public servant. She is my overlord, and I must bow down and kowtow to her, uh, whatever she says. If, if I'm living in another jurisdiction, Mr. Kitchen, you must jump from your ju jurisdiction into our jurisdiction to be charged on crimes of defamation. And if those defamation crimes are not enough, well, we'll twist them into something else to make sure that you are grabbed in another country and brought to this country for justice to be served. Now, yes. when I've asked them to weigh this up and say, excuse me, my emails, 25 of them that were sent out, uh, mainly complaints to the, the, um, the government itself, complaining that I was being defrauded, uh, I said basically, look, uh, how would you weigh that up against 16 days in solitary confinement without medicine and being stripped? It sounds a little bit to me, and I'm going to say this word, like I'm being uh, abducted by Nazis and Gestapo. They said, well, you can't use those words. And I said, no, but that's my opinion. And that's how I feel that I've been treated because I'm not dealing with normal people here, people who have some compassion and understanding. There's no rationale, uh, Brian, at all. They have no common sense. They're being trained, as I said, by Seppel to go through computer models and do everything robotically without any concern for the human aspect anymore. And this is frightening. This is chilling. Um, does, does, does that make sense or have I've gone off it, track it, here? No, it makes, total, it makes total sense to me. And what was in my mind while you were talking, those, those final couple of minutes, of course, is that um, the many people in the UK believe that we have separated ourselves from the European Union and uh, we're out. Brexit has occurred. But the reality is that if you look, the UK is still fully uh, embroiled in many, many uh, different uh, partnering arrangements and agreements with the uh, European Union, certainly across the military sphere. Um, but also we see this partnership working uh, across the police and the judicial system. And uh, I can talk about, um, I can talk from personal experience because I was involved with the families at the time of, of people who uh, ran into trouble um, in the subject of child protection, uh, where they in one case, a lady attempted to escape. To, she was French, but she was married to an Englishman. And uh, she was worried about the safety of her two children from her English husband. Uh, and at one point, she took the two children back to France because she felt that at least she could protect them there. And uh, I think she was in France for about four or five months. And suddenly one day she was summoned into the um, chambers of the local judge and told that she needed to attend with the two children. And she said to me, Brian, I, I knew what was going to happen, but I had to go because if I didn't go, I would have been automatically arrested. 
the moment we got through the door in the chambers, my two children were taken and they were shipped back to UK and given to the abusive partner. Um, but in the, the time that I dealt with that particular mother, which was over several years, what we saw was a seamless, um, I, I keep using this word partnership because this is the word that is often used to cover up a whole variety of uh, legal arrangements. But we saw a seamless partnership between the police, courts and child protection in UK and France. And that was a real wake up call to me that uh, even where children were concerned, you, you could run into this very draconian uh, system. And the other person that uh, I'll just mention to reinforce your point that when you talk to MPs, they do do anything is a very brave um, lady called Rowley Post. And uh, many years ago, probably about 12, maybe 15 years, she wrote a book called From, uh, sorry, From Romania for Export Only. And that book was an expose on child abuse within the European Union. Uh, but it was based on the fact that she had been engaged as a European uh, assessor and inspector to look at what was happening at the children's homes in Romania. And what she discovered to her horror was children were being trafficked out of those homes through the European system. And it was quite clear to her very quickly that the European system, and that means the political system, the court system, and the police system, was fully aware of what was happening to these children. Yet even when she produced the evidence to demonstrate to both European politicians and British politicians that this is indeed what was happening, she was met with a wall of indifference and silence. So that is not an anecdotal story. People can have a look at the book. You can find it online. Unfortunately, the English translation has got a few weaknesses, but it's perfectly readable and understandable. And that lady was talking from her personal professional experience from working within the European Union with duties involving uh, inspection of those child facilities in Romania. So politicians, I'm going to suggest, Trevor, who actually have an uncomfortable feeling that something is wrong in the European Union political and judicial system, but they're too scared to actually stand up and speak out. Well, yes, I think they're scared for their jobs. And while you're on the subject about Brexit, uh, I think that this whole thing with Brexit, as we know, uh, it, there, so, there seems to be some sort of brainwash going on with the other 50% of the UK population. Because the way they talk about this is that as though it was we left because of um, trading, and we didn't. We left the EU because of this buildup of the legal system and the takeover of British law, uh, which is much fairer than European laws. I've seen that myself. So this is what Parliament and many other people who wanted Brexit to go through were concerned with. They were concerned that the European Union were taking over all of these um, roles in the European 
Court of Justice and uh, and all the others that I've listed. There are there, there are many of these agencies now, and they're all law. That has got nothing to do with trading. So the UK wanted to continue to trade with uh, the European countries, but it's as though the European Commission and the European Union have used trade as a ransom, as a, as a bribe, as a as a bartering tool to be able to take. UK's laws away from the people. And I think if the other 50% understood that better, then they'd be cheering the, the UK left. And by the way, when the UK left, the first thing that Boris Johnson did is he threw out the European arrest warrant. That was the first thing he did. On to the child thing that you mentioned, there was just a, a, a Brian, if I may, there was just an article in the paper, uh, in sorry, in, on BBC just two days ago about migrant children. Tens of thousands of migrants were used by the Swiss um, to work and do slave labor in Switzerland for many, many decades from the 60s, and their children were not allowed to join them. Many people, Italians, Portuguese, Spanish, uh, hid their children in sheds, and they were kept in these awful conditions in Switzerland and worked for years. And at the end of their contract, they were just booted out by Switzerland. Thank you for building our country. So Switzerland's got a bit of a history of child slavery and using other countries' uh, uh, let's say human resources to do their work for them. I was one of those people. I worked nearly 25 years in Switzerland, and this is how they've repaid me. Let's go and get the guy, you know, and reduce his pay you know, if he speaks out of line against the state. And that's what they don't like. They do not like that I've spoken against their state because I wrote letters to the government saying that I was being defrauded and they were not helping me. Their, their parliamentarians were not helping. Their attorney general didn't help. He didn't even write back to my, um, my lawyer who had requested that this arrest warrant be removed from the system. He said, it, Mr. Kitchen, hasn't done anything. They've been forced in Portugal to look at the content of the charges that he was charged with, and they found nothing that justifies an, uh, an extradition, that this extradition is politically driven and it's disproportionate. So would you please take it out? Of course, the attorney general was fired on corruption charges, so he had a substitute sitting there. He had a substitute sitting there, and those substitutes just refused to answer me. They, in fact, pushed me over to the police state called the Federal Police in Switzerland. And they wrote back to me saying, we've done nothing unlawful. And I said, well, do you mind removing this so that my wife and I can enjoy our retirement in peace and quiet without being hunted and stalked, persecuted like this? And they took that as an insult. And and then there, there was one man in Geneva who saw my article in the newspaper, and I won't mention his name, but he worked with Roger Moore. I think I might have mentioned this before. And he phoned my lawyer instantly, and he said, you need to get this squashed immediately because of the Swiss are attacking Mr. Kitchen because they don't like being embarrassed. And this is the same with the EU. This is why it went on for four years. And you can see now, Brian, in my case, if I'm going on a bit too much, please stop me. In my case particular, they're doing exactly the same that they did with Brexit. They are just 
you know, if it doesn't work one way, let's try it another way. And we'll keep taking this right away from these people. And in my case, they're doing the same. Right, As Trevor, I said, they'll find in every country. Trevor, thank you for that. Um, let's, to reinforce what you've just said, let's, let's have a look at your second uh, list of points, which was principally about European arrest warrant, but, but to do with the judicial uh, system itself. Uh, but number one came straight in my mind as you were talking because you've put here Council of Europe rates Switzerland's human rights practices as, quote, globally unsatisfactory. Now, even if they are a paper tiger themselves, that is a pretty damning comment, globally unsatisfactory. And yet this is this is Switzerland is the country which you're describing really puts itself on a pedestal for efficiency, cleanliness, um, uh, independence. Um, you know, we are above other people. We're the Swiss. We do things differently in how we vote. Um, we have stayed out of world wars. You can trust us because we're the Swiss. And you've described a system completely different. And that system has, has, has been recognised there by the Council of Europe as globally unsatisfactory. I find that very interesting. I'll just do a couple more points and I'll come back to you again. But you said that uh, you were talking about arrest warrants kept indefinitely active in the system for years. Well, of course, this is particularly brutal because it places people under huge psychological pressure aside from anything else. Um, the EU encouraged the European arrest warrant. I'm not sure what the MLA is, you can tell me in a second, to capture detained mm -hmm. suspects, but contradicts members' use of court decisions in favour of the suspect being unfairly targeted. Um, EU, sorry, EAW, <coughs> excuse me, uh, has multitude of law enforcement agencies under its Justice and Home Affairs Department. Now, you've emphasised that, that when you're dealing with the European Union, you've got this huge cluster of organisations that work together. But of course, if you try and challenge them, you can never sort of get to the ultimate decision maker because they can pass the buck in order to, do, to deflect the inquiries. And uh, you've also here got um, journalists targeted. So even people who attempt to pry open the doors or lift up the stones to say what is going on here those people are being targeted themselves so this is a very dangerous system switzerland sits at the heart of europe um, not fully politically integrated well it would say it's independent uh, but of course what we've already touched on is that as a banking power switzerland is is incredibly powerful. The Bank of Bank for International Settlements, based in Switzerland, and giving itself complete diplomatic immunity from any questioning. So we're describing a political system which can detain people at will, controlled by a banking system that simply make themselves above the law. You almost couldn't make this up. Yeah. Well, they are. They are um, there's a reason why all of these um, agencies and organizations are based in Switzerland. 
Switzerland is used, and this is not just me who said this, uh, professors in, in law and um, other people in Switzerland, economists and so forth, have said that Switzerland is the base where the globalists are using everything. And I think some of your own people there at UK Column have picked up on this, Ian Davis for one, um, where it all centralizes into Switzerland. Maybe that's because of the banking system, and I'm pretty sure it is, because the Bank of International Settlements, yes, they're immune uh, from uh, uh, being charged with anything. But going back to the, the point about uh, Council of Europe, rates Switzerland's human rights practices as globally unsatisfactory. You think that a country that you use a benchmark of human rights for, now, let's be honest here, Switzerland is always pointing the finger, or the Swiss government are always pointing the finger at other countries' violation of human rights. They never look at their own, and they have thousands of cases of human rights violations in Switzerland. And that's not just coming from me because of my experience. There are people there who have no voice at all. They, they, they are silenced. Uh, Rudolf Elmer was one of them, but he managed to, uh, you know, the bank uh, person I spoke about earlier, he managed to get uh, all this done through the UK. He went to the UK and got his whole case exposed there. So I'll just move on to the next point that you mentioned, Brian, if I may. Um, the arrest warrants are kept indefinitely active. It's to disrupt, it's to silence, it's to oppress. And that's what it's doing to me. I am afraid to even think now properly. I wake up in the morning and I start thinking, oh, this is what happened. Oh, but I better not say it. I better not voice my opinion. So they keep these arrest warrants as a threat in the background to subdue, to suppress, oppress. And it is very primitive. The MLA that you mentioned, besides the European arrest warrant, is what they call, very conveniently, mutual legal assistance. So all these European Union countries are legally assisting one another to capture and detain people, even, as I've said, for misdemeanors. And, you know, this contradicts them in a way because what they're doing, if you think that they can use all of this power to capture someone, but then when you, when the person, the suspect that they've captured says, well, wait a minute, I think this is a little bit out of whack and disproportionate. Would you listen to my side of the story? Would you use the same type of powers to get me out of the problem that you've put me in? They don't respond. It's almost as though they want to be this oppressive state, that they, they only want to look from one side. Uh, and I'm seeing this everywhere. These, I think you call it double standards in the UK. They only seem to have one point of view. And when you come with your opinion from the other side to get some sort of equal balance to justice, it doesn't exist. So I've noticed that, that that's what they do. So they, there's... Lawyers have told me that there's mutual legal uh, agreements that the EU has made with all of its EU members, that they will use that with the utmost power to capture public. But they will not use that same power to help prove that the public have been unfairly targeted. And I find that, that, that this is not just happening with this European arrest warrant. This is happening 
in all aspects of law. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, but and I never thought I'd get to this age and I'd be fighting for this. And sometimes I wonder what I'm really trying to fight here because uh, it doesn't seem to me like the younger generations are really interested in this. Why should well, I, you know, try and fight for their future? <laughs> uh, That's Trevor, the feeling I get. Trevor, I, uh, I think you know exactly what you're fighting for because you have physically experienced the system and what it can do. You've been strip searched. You've, you've been held in a cell. And of course, for the average person, they've never ever been in a police station, never mind being locked up in a cell or strip searched. So you are, you, you've, you've experienced, I've lost you for the. Oh, just let just let me finish for a moment, Trevor. Um, you, you've experienced uh, the actual brutality of the system, and you've experienced the psychological pressure of the system. And and what you are trying to do is to warn other people that this system exists, and unless something is done about it, it appears it's growing in power. So, I, I don't have any doubt about what you're doing, and you're very brave to be speaking out on the subject and you need to and um, people need to pay attention to what you're talking about i just reinforce the point you made a little while ago where you said um, that politicians had warned about what was going on and uh, you'd sent us this link which takes us to a bbc uh, news article it's dated 10th of november 2014 and the headline is rab so the minister uh, European arrest warrant has devastated lives. The European arrest warrant uh, has devastated the lives of too many in innocent people, Conservative MP Dominic Rather said. He explained that it led to people being subjected to horrific jail conditions and financial ruin. His comments come as MPs are to vote on whether UK should opt in to a range of EU legal measures. Now, I think we've got to give some credit here because MPs often get a lot of very bad publicity. But this um, headline demonstrates, as you say, that there were MPs within the UK system who were warning about the dangers of what was happening here. And I suppose, luckily for us, um, they did speak out. Yes. And um, while we're on that subject, I've um, being in Portugal, I I know of a, a lady here. She's in her 70s and uh, she's been under house arrest for, um, I think it's going on two years now on a fraud case. And she's not allowed outside of the apartment. She's not far from where we live. And um, so she's she's under house arrest for two years. She was kept in prison for 10 months She's 70 odd years of age and she swears that she's innocent and that there's been a mistake. Now, I don't know what her case is about, some fraud or something, but nonetheless, she's guilty until proven innocent. And that's the problem. Uh, right. Take, take us. Sorry, yeah. Trevor, take us on to this uh, gentleman. Um, I've got a Guardian uh, headline for him. His name's Ai Weiwei, if I've pronounced that correctly. And um, the Guardian says, devastated by his time in Germany, which he regards as still Nazi, the artist has moved. As he unveils a powerful virtual reality artwork, 
He talks about needing a monster to fight and why he'd like to be a barber. So the headline little bit sort of um, uh, blurring what, what he's really trying to say, but the word Nazi says it all. This uh, Chinese gentleman describing Germany as still being Nazi. What, what did you discover from meeting him? Yeah, well, we met him because he's not far from us and uh, he comes from the same city as my wife, Beijing in China. He's a very nice gentleman. So we sat down and had a coffee together and uh, he's lived in the UK, Germany. He had problems in Germany uh, with people and free speech. Uh, he apparently uh, uh, lived in the UK. I think his son studies there and he says the UK is the the best place, the people are friendly, and they're, they're the most free country in Europe. That's what he told me, straight out. But in, in, in one of the Swiss articles that he, he was interviewed for, and he was outside of the country when he said this, he called Swiss, Switzerland the most hypocritical state in the world. It pretends to be democratic, and at the same time, it hides crimes and profits from the crimes of others. And he said that Beijing had long since uh, seen through this sort of selective double standards of the West. Uh, and they've long seen through that and they do not accept it anymore. He said the Swiss are hypocritical through and through. And he referred to their government as Nazis. Well, the very next day, Credit Suisse, where he holds a foundation um, uh, for human rights, closed his bank account. And the manager went out and filed a, a criminal defamation charge against uh, Ai Weiwei for um, defamation. <laughs> Incredible. And I'm just going to say against that particular case around, around this gentleman, he's talking mm. about hypocrisy, he's talking about double standards and Beijing sees this. And of course, we can we can take that context and have a look at what's happening at the moment to do with uh, the uh, Chinese and Taiwan. Uh, they are facing a West um, where, where the European Union, of course, is is one of the powerful political blocks in the West. But the Chinese are facing um, tr uh, sanctions and threats of war from a European Union block, which they see quite accurately as being um, full of double standards and hypocrisy. It's very interesting, isn't it, as we start to lift stones around what the true situation is in Europe politically. Uh, I'm certainly learning, and I think many other people are, that the grass is not that green in the West. We've actually got stuff happening under the surface which to me is often worse than in, we'll say, a former communist country, because at least you, could, you knew what those regimes were. But in the West, we've now got a veneer of respectability, but underneath it is complete rot. Is that a bit strong? It's, no, it's not. Um, my wife is Chinese. She's from Beijing, and uh, she has been broken by what's happened to us. She said this is worse than the Chinese um, revolution or whatever it was that they had. Sorry, I can't remember what it was called, but worse than the Red Guards. Um, 
she's a broken woman now. She could not believe that these type of things happened in Europe, especially, again, in Switzerland. She cannot believe the injustice that we've gone through. What, the way I see it, Brian, is that the West has moved more east. It's become more communistic, if you like, whereas the East, the Chinese and the Russians are becoming more understanding. And I don't know whether I'm losing the plot as I'm getting older, but that's the way I see it. I listen to Putin. I listen to the Chinese television. And these people are making total sense, but not just about politics, but on life in general. When, you, when I switch on the TV and listen to the, the news in China, you get a broad um, view of what everything that's going on. But in Europe, you're getting these small snippets of what's going on in the world. The important things are kept on the screen for 30 seconds. And then they fill the screen and the news with stuff that is just not relevant. And you have to ask yourself, why are they doing this? Are they trying to make society so dumbed down that they can't think properly anymore? So that's, that's the way I see it. But, you know, we're even thinking now of moving to China. I'm, I'm thinking about if I don't get my passport, it's been nearly six months now from the UK, and I've, I've written to everyone saying, why is my passport being withheld? I'm British. I, thousands of generations British I am, and I haven't got a passport. How can that be? And I've said, well, we'd better go to the Chinese consulate in Lisbon and ask for political asylum in China and go back to where my wife is from, because we have more freedom there than we have in Europe. Can you believe that? Trevor, that, that's an incredible statement and, and I, I don't use the word incredible as in disbelief I, I totally believe what you're describing and I can understand your decision process but it, it is an incredible state of affairs that in 2022 this is where let's just focus on UK this is where UK has got to at the, at the moment but I, I have seen um, uh, this type of reaction from other um, newcomers to uh, UK, particularly people who've come out of the Eastern, uh, the Eastern Bloc countries. So they've come in from Albania or Romania. And in their minds, they travel across Europe in order to become free. And they think that when they come into UK, they're into this marvelous country, which has a wonderful justice system. And okay, there are some things that we can say don't really happen in the same way as their country of origin. Uh, maybe the chances of getting your door kicked in by the police in the middle of the night are somewhat less in UK, although that does happen. But they come here believing that once they've um, come across the borders into UK, they're into a safe democracy where there is proper rule of law and they're going to be protected. And then what do they discover? Well, the key area that I can talk about is that they discover their children are not safe from the state. And uh, that basically, um, if their children can be stolen by the British state, nothing they own is safe. And then they go through a court procedure where if they go via the family courts, they're going through 
effectively a star chamber because there is no jury, there is no public. And the net result is these people are devastated to understand um, that actually there's the veneer of respectability for UK, but under the surface, it, it can be equally, if not more vicious than some of these countries we would traditionally regard as being uh, of lacking democracy and protection of, of human rights. And I've seen this huge change in the way these people think, the shock when they come to realize that UK is not the country they think it is. And I can easily imagine somebody going into Germany. Um, how would they regard Germany? Well, a country that's had its problems in years gone by, but a public who are largely uh, very aware of crimes committed by Germany in the past, but they're moving on. They want to live peacefully. They don't want to be involved in war. So I can imagine um, uh, I, we, uh, Weiwei coming into Germany and thinking that he'd come into a safe democratic environment. But what he then discovered is that actually under the surface, much of the same thought process and political process existed. Yes, yes, absolutely. And going back to the UK and, and the freedoms that these people want to enjoy when they leave these Eastern Bloc countries, move into the UK, I have a theory there, Brian. And I think that over these years, um, unfortunately, and I don't mean any disrespect here, people have been catapulted out of these archaic systems into the UK, and that has had an influence. And what I mean by that is it's had a, an effect of diluting the existing freedoms that we had in the UK. I grew up in the UK, I'm British, and there, there was always freedom, there was always justice, and that has been slowly diluted. And if you imagine uh, these poorer people from these Eastern Bloc countries moving into the UK, and they've suddenly got this freedom and they start going to university and they study. And in the universities, they study law. And while they're studying law, they influence that law and it slowly changes. And that person becomes a second generation and a third generation and so on. But in no doubt, it has influenced the future of the UK. And I don't think people were prepared for this when they when they allowed this movement of people on such a scale. And I saw this when I lived in South Africa for many years too, that um, the introduction of certain groups of people into societies that were more, let's say, people moved from Europe into, into African countries and they took their uh, traditions with them and so forth, well, the local people were not used to those traditions. They were not used to those freedoms either. And then suddenly they were catapulted into the 21st century with these freedoms. And well, now those people are basically in um, higher positions and uh, good luck to them basically. But that's what I see. And that's what I've seen with Beijing as well in China. I've been down there a few times. Um, the Europeans have gone in and they've influenced the Chinese to become more Westernized, yes. more Westernized. Does that make sense? 
Uh, Trevor, this makes complete sense to me. And um, I'm smiling because I'm going to have to do what I've done uh, with a couple of other guests recently, which, uh, which is to say that unfortunately, I'm clock watching at the moment and, and we need to stop in a couple of minutes because we've got some other things happening with the UK Column Studio. But you have got into an absolute key subject now because we're talking about geopolitical change and what it's really about. And, and we've we're now touching on the hot subject of immigration. And I'd like to I'd like to get into this more with you. But to do it justice, I think we're going to need another session. But let me just close off um, the really excellent conversation we've had today by saying that one of the men who came to my attention several years ago was called Peter Sutherland. And Peter Sutherland was the UN ambassador for migration. And he is on public record as stating that we need more mass migration in order to break down the homogeneity of the nation states. Now, he was principally talking about nation states in Europe, but here was a very powerful man blatantly describing what migration was for. And when you see it against that background, we can, we can take a very emotive subject of migration and all the problems it, it brings and we can start to say, wow, actually the underlying objection, uh, objective was to break down nation states. And why would you want to break down the nation state? Because the reality is under the surface of what we see as a, a normal and ordinary member of the public, whether we're in UK or Europe, is the fact that this very dangerous political construct, the European Union, was being formed. And I'd just like to, I will come back to you, of course, but I'd just like to end on this particular uh, headline from the Express. This is going back to 2017. And it says, European Union is just another name for the Fourth Reich. Poles furious at German-led EU. Um, now, that's an emotive headline. I think there's all sorts of things we can discuss around it. But can I, Trevor, can I invite you back again to kick off uh, with this description of uh, what the European Union is and um, how the UK has suffered as a result of getting involved in the EU project? Would, would you be happy to dip a couple of toes into that, into that water? I would, very, I would very much like to do that, Brian. And if, if I have one minute, I would like to just leave with a quote that, that would give your uh, listeners a, a taste of what that next uh, step would be. And this is a lawyer's quote. Do I have enough time to put this in? Yes. Probably yes. One yes. This is from my lawyer in Holland. The public need to be aware that once an EU member state sets its eyes on them, there is absolutely no legal protection whatsoever. The public are not aware of the risks involved in traveling within the EU when it comes to the lack of protection against the EU state members. EU politicians have given massive powers to prosecution services and uh, law enforcement, allowing them to imprison people indefinitely. 
sometimes up to two years without a trial. Holland has kept people for more than two years on extradition. Malicious arrests do not fall under the Article 6 of the European Human Rights uh, to a fair trial. And so the public are not, cannot even complain about due process. Politicians are incapable of understanding that once they provide this kind of power to prosecutors and other executive authorities, they themselves might well become a victim at one point. Once they do become a victim, they are shocked just how far those powers go, how dehumanizing the criminal system in the EU is and how much stress it puts on the individual shoulders. Trevor, well, it, it couldn't have been put more concisely. So we'll leave it there. Uh, we'll leave our viewers and listeners to reflect on that. I'm going to say once again, thank you very much for having the courage to join me today and speak out. And can we also say to your wife, who I'm sure uh, has been a tremendous support for you, that, uh, of course, uh, not everybody in the West believes the propaganda that comes out of our own country. So we extend a hand uh, to China as well in getting through these pretty terrible events that we're experiencing in 2022. Look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.